Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast, where psychology students can learn from psychologists, educators, and practitioners to better understand what they do, how they got there, and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology. I'm your host, Brad Schumacher, and today we welcome Dr. Laura Petrachik to the show. Dr. Petrachik is a clinical psychologist, addiction specialist, author, and speaker with over 30 years of experience in psychotherapy, 26 of which has been spent as a practicing clinical psychologist in California. She is also certified, uh, she is also a certified dialectical behavior therapy or DBT therapist. Today we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, learn more about DBT, and hear a little bit more about her more recently released book, The DBT Workbook for Alcohol and Drug Addiction, Skills and Strategies for Emotional Regulation, Recovery, and Relapse Prevention. And hopefully we'll hear a little bit more advice for those interested in the field of psychology. Dr. Petrachik, welcome to our podcast. Hi, Bradley. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, be with us today. I'm excited to learn a little bit more about your journey. First of all, though, just tell us a little bit more about your undergraduate studies and when you first took an interest in psychology. So that's interesting when you mentioned your daughter's going to school in Minnesota, because that's where I did my undergraduate work. Okay. I um, got my associates in chemical dependency counseling at Metropolitan uh, well, it was called Community College then. Now it's, I think, Metropolitan State. Mm -hmm. And then I got my bachelor's degree in psychology at Hamlin University in St. Paul. But what uh, steered me, uh, sometimes I don't know if I chose the field or it chose me. So I, um, at the age of 17, went into a drug and alcohol rehab. And through that experience, I thought, this is it. I want to be a counselor. Mm -hmm. And then a therapist. So that was the route I took professionally after I uh, got out of rehab and started my undergraduate degree. And so at what point did you know that you wanted to go on for your master's degree? And in this case, your master's degree is in social work. Right. Well, sometimes I kind of joke in the 12-step meetings that um, after I got clean and sober, uh, school became my drug of choice. So I love school. I mean, if I could get two PhDs or three, I probably would have if I didn't uh, midstream uh, start having a family and uh, different uh, priorities took over. But um, I love school. I've always loved school. I think school saved me growing up, uh, saving grace. And luckily, I happen to be good at it. So um, yeah, that, I, I knew that I wanted to keep going forward. Well, uh, with that in mind, I know that uh, I'll share my screen here, and I believe you uh, attended, am I, am I going to, I'm probably going to butcher this name, but Wurzweiler School of Social Work, is that correct? Yes, this is correct. It's Wurzweiler School of Social Work. So I worked in the field as an alcoholism counselor for probably eight years, and I realized that if I wanted to go further I would need to get a master's degree going further, meaning either open a practice or getting uh, different jobs in the field of psychology or of social work. In this particular program, I chose for two reasons. One, well, the main reason was that they had an evening and weekend program. So I obtained a job full time as a counselor, a school counselor at a high school. And so they had classes Thursdays and Sundays. So I was able to work full-time and go to school full-time. And then I also, I was raised Catholic, but I've been interested in the Jewish religion and Judaism. Mm -hmm. And that's another reason that I went. Okay. And, and you ended up getting your Master of Social Work, or MSW, um, yes. at Wurzweiler School. And then after that, you attended the California Institute of Integral Studies for your PhD in clinical psychology. So, you know, I'm going to share the screen again, share that website. And while I do that, kind of tell us a little bit more what led you from Wurzweiler to uh, the C, I think the acronym is CIIS. That's correct. 
So what led me to CIIS was, uh, although I, after my master's in getting licensed, I had a, I started a practice and was doing well, but I wanted to get a doctorate because I wanted to teach and also write a book. Now you didn't, you don't necessarily need a PhD to teach or to write a book, but I thought it would give me uh, a better advantage. Um, and so, and then also this particular school. So I did a four-year postgraduate program in New York City, the Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy. And that's really where I learned how to do therapy to become a therapist. They did a lot of one-way mirror, uh, small group settings, one-on-one -on -one settings. And this particular university had uh, several classes in Gestalt psychology. So that also really interested me. Um, not so much that I needed to take those, but just the overall uh, PhD program is different from traditional research and uh, statistical type of programs. It's more eclectic. Um, I mean, any PhD, you know, after you get licensed, you could be a psychologist and have a practice, but this is more, this program is particularly more geared towards it. And so I know there are tons of schools out there that you, uh, especially in California, that offer graduate programs in psychology. Uh, you go to the website and you see all of these schools that offer the master's degree in psychology. And then you have a long list of schools for masters. And then you also have mm -hmm. a long list for uh, psychology as well. So, you know, you already mentioned a couple reasons why you decided on CIIS. Uh, anything else uh, that kind of stands out when you recall, hey, why did I go there? Or tell me a little bit more about the process of how did you decide? Well, I did um, interview at UC Berkeley in their PhD program. Mm -hmm. And their program was primarily research-based. And I knew that's not really where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. And then there were um, there was a program back in New York, but I also... I'm from the West Coast, and I wanted to get back to the West Coast, so that was another reason. Um, yeah. And and you you mentioned uh, Hamlin, and it's interesting that uh, I, I actually uh, know exactly where Hamlin is. I'm in the cities here as well, and uh, when I was doing some research, I actually found that at one point you must have worked for the Fairview Counseling Center uh, in yes. Apple Valley. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of fun looking at your your journey. And before we talk a little bit more about where you are now, any other fond memories that you had while attending uh, graduate school? And, um, you know, do you still keep in touch with some of your colleagues there? Um, yeah, I have a lot of fond memories of uh, the cohort I was with um, for my master's program. Mm -hmm. I we became very tight, you know, each cohort is small, or at least at that time. And I learned a lot about Judaism and the culture and uh, they have such great food. <laughs> so I was invited to, you know, like the high holy days or Passover, uh, Rosh Hashanah. And I just really fell in love with the culture. And then I actually ended up falling in love uh, with my partner at the time, um, who is Jewish. So it, it was a very um, lovely, warm experience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The, um, yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to follow up. And I was going to say, you know, when you look back and, and you kind of uh, recall the experience for both grad experiences, actually, and then now where you are now uh, with your private practice and you're in California, um, is there anything that you would have done differently? Uh, another way to put that is the information that you know now, is there anything that you wish you had known back then to help kind of guide you to decide on, hey, where am I going to go to school? Which area or branch of psychology should I focus in? Um, you know, any, any other thoughts when we kind of uh, recall that? Yeah, I would have stayed in New York. Okay. Um, 
I didn't realize how challenging it would be to build a practice in a new city. Mm-hmm. Um, before I started my PhD, there was a vast difference between having a master's and a PhD in terms of um, like working in a university, writing a book, uh, in terms of reimbursements from insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when managed care started, like the in the late 80s, in the early 90s. Uh, but then when I finished my PhD, the difference between master's and PhD for reimbursement for my practice instead of $50 was $5. So, and now they see them, insurance companies, they group PhD, masters, they're all the same as far as uh, being in the field. Uh, What else? Any advice for those who uh, are seeking a graduate degree in psychology? Yeah, I would. um, Oh, and also my PhD program was the first school I went to that was a private school. I uh, would avoid it if you can. Uh, one is the cost is exorbitant. Two, uh, there's plenty of really good programs that aren't private um, that are just as um, well recognized. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some, it was interesting in some interviews after I got my PhD, the employers recognized Yeshiva over CIIS. Um, so also do research in that regard. You know, getting a PhD is very, very expensive, mm-hmm. which, you know, I had paid off my master's degree like in two years and paying off my PhD took 25 years. So also, you know, at that time, I didn't consider the burden of debt. And then, you know, I get married, have a daughter and wow, then, then it's very expensive paying those student loans. Um, so that's also something to consider, but I would highly recommend steering away from the private schools. Okay, that's very good advice. And I was going to bring up another one where you brought it up in terms of debt and, and you know, funding. Did CIIS offer you any funding for going into their doctor program? Doesn't Zero. Like yeah. You know who actually offered me money? I got uh, some scholarship money from Hammond University. Oh, you did? And at okay. that time... <laughs> okay, no, this is way back in the day. The tuition was five thousand a year, and now I think it's thirty-five thousand a year. Right. But, you know that was a lot of money to, to me, and they, yeah, they paid like half, which nice. is. And then uh, my master's degree was like nothing. That was ten thousand, but then you go to the PhD, that was one hundred eighty. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there's quite a difference between undergrad and then even masters going to the PhD as well. And then on previous shows, we've talked about if you know you want to continue on for your doctorate, whether it's a PsyD or a PhD, um, instead of applying just for the terminal masters, go ahead and apply to the PhD or PsyD program or doctor program because the likelihood of getting funding when you apply directly to the doctor program is higher than the likelihood of getting any funding for just the master's program. Oh, okay. I actually didn't know that. Yeah. So that's, that definitely that's, makes sense. Yeah. And then the other thing that uh, a lot of my guests are recommending is uh, be careful on your selection of graduate schools, depending on what you want to do with your uh, doctorate. If you want to stay in the academic field outside, work, do government work, do private practice, um, look toward those that are APA accredited. Yes. Um, because that does take precedence over those schools that are non APA accredited as well. So exactly. And unfortunately, right in the middle of my PhD program, CIS lost its accreditation oh, no. for the PhD program. And now it's a PsyD, which is not bad. That is, mm-hmm. but I was the last cohort of folks to get a PhD. And that's what I want. I did not want a PsyD. I wanted a PhD and I was paying money for that PhD, but it really upended a lot of people's uh, program and um, yeah. Plans. Yeah. Their plans. Yeah. It was, it was, it was very messy. It was, it was not a good situation. 
Well, I should remind everybody that you received your uh, Doctor of Philosophy, uh, PhD in clinical psychology. And a yes. lot of students wonder, well, how did you decide on clinical psychology? Because there's so many different branches or fields of psychology. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times our guests and I uh, just basically recognize the reality is sometimes you choose it and sometimes it chooses you. So give us your thoughts on how you ended up in clinical psychology branch of, of psychology. Well, like I stated earlier, it, it chose me. I mean, this mm -hmm. path. And for clinical psychology, I mean, I came, you know, from a social work background. But again, uh, just in reviewing uh, different people who had written books or taught at universities, they seem the main degree seems to be a PhD in clinical psychology. So that's mm -hmm. why I decided to go that route. If I got a doctorate in social work, which wouldn't, you know, that would be just as valuable as a degree, but that would be used more in um, uh, social services or management. And it's not exactly the area that the areas I wanted to be in. Um, well, exactly. And then, when you were going through your graduate studies, did you know what you wanted to do after graduating with your PhD or did it kind of come to you while you were uh, still studying? Well, I knew after my master's, I wanted to open a private practice. Okay. And after my PhD, I wanted to write a book and teach at a university. Mm -hmm. um, but that proved to be very challenging. Well, you laugh about that. And, you know, I looked at your your history and your journey as well. And you have a vast amount of experience as a psychotherapist, a clinical psychologist, over 26, 27 years now. You actually were a psychologist with the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation in San yeah. Quentin, California. And yeah. then we just mentioned, you, you mentioned uh, uh, being an associate professor at National University, and you were there yeah. for a little over two years. And so yeah. uh, what, before then, I should mention that you actually uh, were a clinical director at New Leaf Services for our community. So tell us a little bit about that experience and how you found yeah. that opportunity. So at um, New Leaf, it turned out that the executive director was from Minneapolis. Oh. And so he and I hit it off right away. And New Leaf Services for our community was a clinic for LGBT clients. Mm -hmm. And so I'm also an ally and a member of that community. Mm -hmm. And the opportunity to be the clinical director of the substance and alcohol use program uh, it was very um, exciting for me. Mm -hmm. um, and then to work with different, they had like probably eight different uh, agencies within one big agency. Like they had a program for families, for um, addiction, for mental health. So they had all different facets. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, a really nice community. We'd get together once a week, all the directors and share what's happening in each of our respective units. Uh, I was able to design and implement the training program for trainees who were master's students. And that was also really exciting. I love teaching. So that was another area I got to do teaching. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, and then from there, actually from New Leaf, you actually went to National University as an associate professor and um, worked there for a while. Uh, is that where you kind of confirmed in your own mind, hey, I, I, I want to do private practice instead of staying in the academic field? Or tell me your thought process while yeah. you were teaching. Um, well, the academic field is, I don't know what the word is, but um, I'm trying to think of an example that just happened recently. Um, but it's, uh, so a couple of things. One is I was on track to be a tenure track professor. Mm -hmm. And right before I reached that track, they had decided they were going to, like a lot of universities did, um, hire a lot of part-time staff, a lot of mm -hmm. part-time uh, professors because they didn't want to pay benefits or, mm -hmm. um, so that was one. And that was right at the time I was going in that track. And then the second thing is, 
um, it's very challenging in that, you know, if if certain students, like I had one class where you had to follow a client for a year and write a paper on it. And the last class, this one particular student only had an intake to present. Hmm. And I said, well, this, this class was a whole year long. Like, you know, so that was challenging and difficult how to handle it uh, deftly. But um, I'm just trying to think of this one recent example where this woman, uh, this professor taught a course and she, I don't know, she used some word wrong or something, but she tried to be very uh, mindful. She was being mindful, but I guess not enough. Mm-hmm. And and then she ended up uh, getting fired, which I thought was horrible for, you know, just a minor infraction, not realizing, or she right. realized that she just didn't think it was going to be so upsetting. Mm-hmm. Um so what am I saying? Sometimes you have to walk on eggshells now with mm-hmm. being a professor. Uh, and that's, that's a lot of stress. I didn't like that stress. Yeah, um, it seems I love it, teaching, but not the stress of the rest of it. Right, right. And if I could add, you know, I was a teacher for a number of years as well. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole goal of the academic environment is we're supposed to be safe in discussing anything and everything. And uh, in an open communication, and and that's the goal of the educational system is to explore uh, and have these discussions. And so it seems ironic that, and I understand there are major infractions, like you said, and minor infractions. But uh, yeah, I can I can understand where you're coming from. If you feel like you're walking on eggshells, it's probably not the right place to be. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So I know you mentioned while you were working on your master's degree, you knew in the back of your mind, I wanted to open up a private practice. So let's talk about that for a second. You know, it's one thing that uh, you have this goal of opening a private practice and you have these visions of, you know, getting all these clients and building up your clientele list and then, uh, you know, talking and, and helping your clients through their struggles but there's a business side to opening and running your private practice as well. So tell us about some of the challenges that you experienced when opening and running your own business. So that's a really good question, Bradley. The, um, the business side, they don't teach you that uh, in school at all. Right. So I took a couple of, um, I think it was at a community college. Yeah. About the business side of, of running a practice. And the first thing I would recommend, so I was working at a high school mm-hmm. and then I had my office like probably five blocks away from the high school. So the high school was like a feeder to my practice. And so you need either an agency or some type of clinic or someone who's going to refer to you. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it only takes one therapist. If you've got one therapist who says, Hey, I'm always booked. So I'll send my overflow to you. So that, that was the biggest, that was the most fortunate thing. And then all your connections, Mm -hmm. because when I moved to California, I not only lost that feeder, but I also lost my connections. Mm -hmm. And that is really takes a lot of time and energy to build. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize also, I mean, most cities now are saturated with therapists, but at that time, I didn't realize how the, there's a therapist on every corner out here. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it took quite a bit longer to build a practice here than, than what I had in New York. And the money aspect, accounting, billing, insurance, marketing, did you hire that uh, out to people or did you uh, do that for yourself or? Tell us a little bit about um, that, that aspect. The accounting, I handed over to some, I hired someone. Mm-hmm. Um, I now have someone that does marketing for me. I didn't back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say something else too. Now it just escaped me. But um, uh, yeah, you definitely, it, it's a lot of energy. You know, I have to spend almost as much energy marketing your practice as you do. Do Oh, I know what I want to recommend. Okay. 
So what I finally ended up doing, I mean, I had, you know, probably a small practice, but I joined a group practice. Oh. And so I highly recommend that if you're just starting out, especially even mm-hmm. though I wasn't just starting out, I was just starting out in a new city mm-hmm. and they pay pretty well. I mean, it's a split fee for most mm-hmm. group practice, but still they pray, they pay pretty well. And then you have consultation weekly and I found it to be, and I'm still uh, with this group practice. I mean, on a very limited basis now, but um, but I that is a really good way to get plugged in um, because then you're getting clients while you know, and you get and you could choose how many clients you want, at least depending on the group practice you want to join, and then you could still work on building your practice. But in today's market. I think it's a very smart move because there's just so many people, so many therapists out there. Really hard to hit the ground running and get your own practice going, unless you're like so specific or you know well known or uh, already have a following. Sure, sure. And I think you're referring to that group practice as the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy in San Francisco. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. Yeah. It looks like you've been there a little over a year, year and a half now. And so um, your recommendation is, hey, especially if you're starting off, try to get that group, get into a group practice. And it, it also helps you because uh, more minds can come together and help, uh, you know, when you're when you're treating some of your patients and clients as well. And you learn a tremendous amount from your colleagues in that group yes. practice kind of setting as well. So, yeah. yeah, we actually, like you were talking about, that one particular man who was kind of freaked out about the recording. So um, we also have clients sign um, and most of them do sign it that we can record it. And then we present it to like different clips to consultation, but I've learned a lot. It's been really, and also I joined it because it was during COVID and I felt so isolated. Mm -hmm. So that was another positive because you're, even though you're not in person necessarily, but um, you are connecting with other therapists and it was really helpful. Well, good, good. So whenever I talk to psychologists, psychotherapists, especially those who are practicing psychologists and psychotherapists, I ask this question, Laura, if you were in therapy, describe your ideal therapist. Hmm. Well, I'm not ashamed to say I've been in therapy Mm -hmm. uh, for a majority of my life. Um, well, off and on, but uh, my ideal therapist, someone who is acknowledgeable in uh, different theories of psychology, of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. someone who's uh, older, you know, like my age, I don't think I would want to be in therapy with someone half my age, uh, because I think life experience counts for a lot too, Mm -hmm. as well as um, professional experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Also someone who is not afraid to call me on my BS if it comes up, (laughs) you know, so not just someone that says, how do you feel? Uh Uh-huh. And offers compassion, but is challenging, supportive, uh, you know, my um, my last therapist, uh, he helped me tremendously through a challenging time when my daughter, only daughter, had left home for college, and it was just a really a rough time. Um, and then he ended up getting COVID, oh. and uh, so this is, a, of course, a whole other issue. What do you do when your therapist like disappears? Um, right. I mean, he came back six months later, but that was a huge gap for me um how do I get off on that but well anyway but he helped me tremendously uh so using the different types of therapy or skills teaching me different skills and also supportive and at that time you know connection was so important during COVID so I asked him can we meet outside Mm -hmm. so we did instead of over Zoom and that helped me tremendously Sure. Yeah, it's, it makes a big yeah. difference, even though Zoom is great. And it's, a you know, especially for those going through COVID, you could still meet with people, but not have to be you know, meet in person. But there is a big difference between meeting over 
you know, Zoom or Teams versus in person, because you miss out on some of those nonverbal cues and the feedback yes. and everything else. And you pick that up while you're a therapist and you can pick that up with your clients and and adjust accordingly. So mm -hmm. I'm going to share my screen uh, again, and I'll, I'll share your website here, and it's going to load here in a second. But mm -hmm. while it's loading, um, you know, in summary, you're a clinical psychologist, you're an author, and we'll talk about that in a, in a second, a speaker with over 30 years of experience in, in psychotherapy. And as I mentioned in the intro, 26 of those years have been uh, spent as a practicing psychologist and um, clinical psychologist in California. You're also a certified dialectical behavior therapy or DBT therapist. So yes. start us off and, and tell us kind of high level, what is DBT? So DBT, as you stated, stands for dialectical behavioral therapy. And DBT is a three-prong psychology. So the first part is cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT, which has to do with looking at our thoughts, usually, unfortunately, negative thoughts. Um, the second prong is meditation. Mm -hmm. So learning about meditation, whether it's Tara Brock or um, any time, there's so many different kinds of schools of meditation. And mm -hmm. then uh, the DBT, the D stands for dialectic. Mm -hmm. And that means both and. So right here, it's, if you mm -hmm. could stop right there. These are the four modules of DBT. So teaching mindfulness are mm -hmm. uh, um, also dialectical. Interpersonal effectiveness. Mm -hmm. um, teaching skills that are distress tolerance. And teaching emotional regulation. Mm -hmm. So I found that with a lot of clients, and specifically clients who were uh, in recovery or looking about, uh, see if they have alcohol or drug problem, mm -hmm. that DBT can be very helpful for them mm -hmm. uh, in their journey of recovery. And you did mention this is just one type of therapy DBT is out there. And uh, it actually uh, uh, stems from, believe it or not, uh, CBT or cognitive behavior therapy. It's kind of an extension of that as well. Right. But, uh, um, here are all the different, and this isn't even inclusive, but these right. are the different types of therapy, and there's so many out there. And the yes. ones that um, many people use are the evidence based ones. Um, Thank you. That's mm -hmm. the word that I was looking for. Mm -hmm. And evidence based means there's been a lot of research mm -hmm. to show that it works. So, DBT has is an evidence-based therapy so is cbt mm -hmm. you know so is act and the evidence-based therapies what makes them kind of stand out more than the other therapy is that there's uh research to back their efficacy that it works mm -hmm. a lot of times it's time limited mm -hmm. meaning uh regular talk therapy you could be in for years which isn't a, a necessarily negative but these uh, DBT, you know, it's usually a six month program or six month or to a year therapy. Okay. All right. Yeah. Now, I mentioned earlier, you're an author, you've written multiple books, you just released another book, actually, yesterday, I believe you yes. released this yeah. book. And I mentioned in the introduction, the DBT workbook for alcohol and drug addiction, skills yeah. and strategies for emotional regulation, recovery, and relapse prevention. And uh, this came out yesterday through Jessica Kingsley Publishers. Tell yeah. us a little bit more about the book and why why you wrote it. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm very excited. The book was launched yesterday. And uh, I think I had mentioned earlier that I went through a, a hard time when my daughter left for school. I actually uh, went into a deep depression and my therapist uh, suggested I... Um, he said, you know, I think you would benefit from a DBT program. Here's why. Mm -hmm. And so I myself went into a six-month DBT program. And during one of the uh, groups, the therapist said, or the topic was pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I've heard that so many times in AA, but the how to not suffer has eluded me. 
And I thought this would be great, these skills I'm learning to apply to the 12-step program. Mm -hmm. So that was my epiphany. And from there, I started writing this book. Uh, It really didn't get rolling until the pandemic um, when I had a lot of time. But um, yeah, that's what that was the impetus. That was the spark. And so basically, the book is looking at here's step one, for example, powerless over alcohol. What are some of the DBT skills that could help you deal with that powerlessness and unmanageability to accept it, to mm-hmm. work through it? And so one of the steps or skills are acceptance. And then Marsha Lanahan takes you through the different skills of acceptance, uh, meditation. Um, so I have DBT overall, overall has about 200 skills. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, compared to the 12-step program, maybe has 20. I mean, not to knock it down, but, you know, it's a program that was uh, devised 80 years ago. We have a lot more tools now and strategies to help people with alcohol or substance use issues. And so I married both strategies in this workbook um, to give people in recovery additional tools mm-hmm. you know, and, and kind of a, a workbook that I wish I had when I was you know, newly sober, um, more tools that I could have used. Well, it looks like it. And I, you know, I did some research a little bit. Um, uh, Some people may be aware of the term dry January. And so tell us a little bit more about what does dry January mean? And then I'll share a statistic here. And then I'll kind of ask you specifically, how can DBT be used to actually help those addicted to drugs or alcohol? So first of all, what is dry January? So dry January is people making the decision, okay, basically in the program, they call it going on the wagon. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now they have this fancy term dry January, (laughs) but they're going on the wagon for a month. They're they're not using alcohol or drugs. Uh, It came from also like, wow, I'm partied out after the holidays. So I want to dry out. Mm -hmm. And so that's what it is. It's, It's like putting the plug in the jug, as they'd say in the program, it's stopping not using alcohol or drugs. Um, but that's only uh, in the field of addiction, the, the tip of the iceberg. But at least it's a start if mm-hmm. someone wants to further their uh, commitment to being clean and sober. Um, yeah. And, and that, oh, go ahead. Okay. So, where DBT could help with this is uh, they have a skill looking at the pros and cons. And it's a four, uh, it's a, the pros of drinking, the cons of drinking, the pros of not drinking, the cons of drinking. It's, 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 it's interesting, but they cover all bases with that. And so you look at, okay, is this, do I want to continue pick up a drink again or drugs? Because most of my clients who've done dry January feel mm-hmm. better mm-hmm. if they're not already in recovery. And even if it's not necessarily to the level of a alcohol use disorder. But most people say they feel better all the mm-hmm. way around, emotionally, physically, spiritually. And DBT could also help with, uh, they have an interpersonal effectiveness looking at your values. So, wow, in jo- January, I spent more time with my kids or with my partner. Mm-hmm. And I felt, you know, we had a more intimate connection. That feels better. Mm-hmm. Or what are your values? You know, well, see, alcohol use, you know, using you know, having two glasses of wine every night doesn't really sit with my value of um, spending time with my family in the evening or with my partner um, or how I, the hangover in the morning doesn't work with working out. So there's many different tools that Dr. Linehan talk, discusses and that can be used with uh, looking at your relationship to alcohol and drugs and seeing, okay, so now where do I want to go? You have a clear head right now. Do you really want to go right back? Um, I remember when I was, uh, before I went to re- recovery, to rehab, they had this woman from AA came and talked to me and she goes, okay, look, just try it for a year. If you don't like it, you could always have your misery refunded. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and that stuck with me. And it's like, so I suggest to my clients, just why don't we keep going? You could always have your misery refunded. 
mm-hmm. you know, you could always go back to where things were. I mean, but you, right. you went on this for a reason. Most people do dry January for a reason. They don't just do it because, oh, having one or two drinks a week, I'm fine. No, that's not usually the case. Right, right. So I found a statistic, uh, according to CGA, dry January has been growing in popularity for a number of years. And and in 2022, saw participation grow to 35% in the US, a significant increase from 21% of consumers who took part in 2019. Furthermore, they said, out of those who intended to abstain from alcohol, an impressive 74% claimed to have succeeded versus the average 8 to 10% of uh, uh, consumers who stick to their New Year's resolutions. So this tells you that more people are interested in doing dry January and more, more and more of them are doing that over the years. And not only that, but almost three-fourths of them claim to have succeeded versus the average person who makes these New Year's resolutions, only 8 to 10% of those actually uh, stick to those New Year's resolutions as well. So I, I found that interesting. And it, it related to, you know, what you're doing as an addiction specialist and your new book as well. And so I believe your new book draws on your clinical knowledge as well as your expertise and some of your personal experience, as, as you've already talked about. What else would you like us to know about the book or the tools that you can uh, learn from recovery. So again, it builds off of the 12-step program. Mm -hmm. So Bill W. suffered from uh, major depression for several years. And after he came out of that, he really uh, thought it'd be so great if a psychotherapy program could be intertwined with the 12-step program, because for him, he said, this is what I needed. And I think many people in recovery do. So this book builds on the 12-step program, meaning like I stated earlier, Bradley, that, okay, now the second step, here's, you know, I just give a brief, like a one paragraph background on what that step is, but then here's all these other tools you could use. So that step is about, you know, learning about balance. So you could use the tool of looking at um, what's healthy, what's not healthy, what you could do to add more um, health and, and balance in your life. Um, the third step is about turning your life over. Some people have trouble with the God part of AA. So I try to soften it and offer different um, suggestions like the great outdoors or the group of drunks. Mm-hmm. Bradley, you're frozen. Oh, I'm still here. I'm still here. Oh, okay. Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Okay. I don't All know right. if it's your internet's unstable or mine, but anyway. Um, and so that's I, just an example of how the book, it really, you look more in depth uh, at each step from a different angle um, from okay. your emotional health, because the DBT talks, the main goal is about emotional regulation. And most people in recovery suffer from emotional dysregulation. So it's a way to be emotionally sober. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, one thing I should mention about the book, I like the summary here is, you know, DBT is is a type of talking therapy tailored to those who feel emotions very intensely, exploring skills and strategies drawn from DBT that correspond with each of the 12 steps. This book provides a new roadmap to reduce emotional distress symptoms and support your sobriety and mental health. And so I would uh, encourage everybody to check it out. Again, it just came out yesterday. Um, Laura, what what do you love most about your job? What do I love most? Um, I really love helping people, making connection, uh, helping them make the connection, like for them to have an aha moment. Um, I love seeing the growth, uh, people making progress, uh, being there through their struggles, um, offering them hope. Mm-hmm. You know that that you can get through this, and um, and here's how I'm you know basically going to help you. Like giving this book is like the roadmap. This book is part of my survival guide that I now am teaching my clients mm-hmm. of how to uh, get to a, a better place, healthier, less dysregulation, and a more solid 
recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, but and I really like seeing clients in person again. During the pandemic, I built out my back bedroom into an office, and it's just so great to see people in person again. To see clients in person because, like you said, there's a difference. But also, just our presence. You know, just my presence, let's say, with the loved one, it's different than if I'm Zooming with them, you know, exactly. a big mm-hmm. difference that just someone's presence is so healing. So I like that advantage, too, of working in person. Yeah, definitely. Looking toward the future, uh, what other goals or plans do you have for yourself? Well, you know, it's interesting you uh, mentioned, I'm actually going to be presenting at the Minnesota Psychological conference or psychology conference at the end of April. Uh, DBT, my workshop is DBT for alcoholics and addicts. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm going to be doing a a book reading too, although I I don't have a bookstore yet. But maybe you could even help me with that or give me (laughs) suggestions. I'm looking for a bookstore to host me. And overall, I'm going to be doing uh, readings in New York and Chicago, all over the country. Um, I got invited last week to do uh, some trainings out in Australia Mm -hmm. uh, for people who work in addiction medicine. So I'm kind of going where the road is opening up to. And I have to say, it's opening up really quickly. I'm so excited. It's really exciting. Well, it sounds like it. It's always exciting to have a new book out and then actually do some book readings and go to this conference as well. So I'll I'll share that on the uh, website when we go live. Any other advice that you'd have for anybody who's the least bit interested in the in breaking into the field of psychology? Here's another idea. See if you could shadow someone that is working. Like, can you shadow someone for a day or observe, you know, or go to a clinic and maybe you're just observing? um, Because I know because of confidentiality, you can't be in a session, of course, but um, it helps to just be in the setting and see how you feel. Mm -hmm. You know, how does this feel? Um, So if you could shadow someone or interview someone already in your field, like you're interviewing me, interview someone, you know because it may not be for you, um, but you need to do more research then uh, and research the programs you're in. Like, honestly, I wish I would have researched my PhD program a lot more thoroughly. And, and I'm, you know, kind of regret that um, because there's schools that are a lot less expensive and that's the route I think you should go. Okay. All right. Near the end of most of our podcasts, we usually ask some fun questions. So I usually ask this one, but you've already shared uh, a little bit to answer this, but I'll ask it anyway. You might come up with another aspect of this. Uh, Laura, tell us something unique about yourself. I am also a rap psychologist. So I know you look at me with my pale (laughs) white skin and my blonde curly hair and you're thinking to yourself, I bet that you can't even swear. Well, mm, 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 you just try me. I wrap your ass up so it impressed your walk right by me. Soon you'll be saying she's not a doctor you could slam. Soon you'll be saying Dr. P can. There you go. Perfect. Uh, Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Now, in terms of the second one, you've already I, I already know one answer to this. So what is your favorite term? principle or theory and why the given is dbt but if you come up with another term principle or theory and why the other one would be gestalt therapy okay gestalt therapy uh, looks at the whole person very much in the moment uh, looking at uh, the interaction between the client and the therapist also dealing with emotions that are coming up as well as of course, uh, family of origin issues, mm-hmm. but it's a very, a very personable and uh, contact, not physically, but um, connecting with your clients. Okay, very good. What's one of the most important things you've learned in your life so far? Mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things I've learned is to keep going, mm-hmm. you know, one step at a time, one foot at a time. Uh, this too shall pass. 
and it gets better. Very good. Yeah. Laura, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do? One project. You, you know, it's interesting because I've been thinking about this. I don't know exactly how it would work out, but I really, uh, another goal or project I'd like to have is, um, you know, suicide prevention, but to, to be on site, so to speak. So I'm part of what's called the angel team on the Bay Bridge. We walk the Bay Bridge and we have uh, like red armbands on. And if we see someone uh, we think is in distress or alone, then we each have each other's number and a contact number. But, you know, so many, so many people um, are committing suicide. It just, it really just breaks my heart. And I, I want to somehow work towards, uh, I'm not sure how I could, like I even think of the have legal suicide in Sweden. Like I would love just to escort someone to those pods and really just be there for their moments, even though, I mean, part of me would like to talk them out of it, but if that's not an option, at least to be there. So that's, that's something I don't really have it totally framed, but that's something I've thought about lately with, um, you know, so many suicides that are talked about lately, uh, like the Trevor project. I really admire that something like that. I'm not exactly sure, but something like that. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. I've been to San Francisco plenty of times and and been, of course, on the uh, bridge. And I didn't know that you had uh, the angel group or whatever you yes. were saying, yeah. you know, doing that. So that's actually uh, interesting and fortunate. And, and hopefully that it helps people and gives uh, somebody some hope to uh, uh, avoid that. Laura, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast? Uh, no, I, I really want to thank you again, Bradley, for inviting me to your show. And um, sounds like you're in Minneapolis. So um, is that correct? I am. I'm actually in a suburb outside of Minneapolis, St. Paul. So Okay, so maybe um, when I'm there in April, uh, we could do this offline, uh, maybe connect in some way. Yes, definitely. Okay. Laura, thanks again for sharing your journey and advice with us. I, I really appreciate you uh, um, taking the time out of your busy schedule to be on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Bradley. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.